back for another episode of 15 Minute Film Fanatics. I'm really excited. This week, I picked again. We're doing 1995-7, directed by David Fincher and written by... Andrew Kevin Walker. So this was a, a Mike pick. This was my pick. Dan, this was another one of those movies that you've not seen in what, like like 20 years? Easily since it came out. And you wouldn't have watched it again unless I suggested it. So I'm really eager to hear your overall take. I've thought a lot about this movie, uh, but you go first. So this is a film that I saw when it came out. I thought it was terrific. I told everyone else to go see it, and I never saw it again. Um, when it ever came up a conversation, if anyone said, have you ever seen Seven? I'm like, oh, yeah, Seven, it's a terrific movie. But nothing drew me to it except when you said, we should do this for the podcast. So here's what I think now, watching it again after all that time. Great pick, first of all, great pick. Something, a very, a very simple thing is that we take Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt for granted. You know, they're, they're, it seems like they're in everything, especially Morgan Freeman, right? There was a period, he was like Michael Caine. He was in every other movie we watched. But they're both movie stars and actors at the same time. Some people are movie stars, but they're not great actors. Some people are great actors, but they're not movie stars. These two guys are both photogenic, they're charismatic, and they both have the chops. Um, little things, like I love Morgan Freeman playing with a napkin when they're having dinner at Brad Pitt and Gwyneth Paltrow's apartment. That reminded me of Marlon Brando playing with Eva Marie Saint's glove and on the waterfront. Remember he puts her glove on and he's taking it off finger by finger? So uh, when he throws the switchblade, I think that's like a perfect moment. So there's so many good touches like that. The other funny thing about this is that we've talked about a genre of film called It Shouldn't Work on Paper. Or if someone described it to me, it really wouldn't work. So what's this movie about? Well, it's about these two cops. And it's almost like they're the odd couple, right? Like there's a white guy and a black guy. One's young, one's old. One's married, one's single. One's a slob, one's neat. Uh, one likes to read books and one just uses cliff notes. You know, one loses his cool with, with reporters and one has a lot of restraint. So it has all these chances to be trite, especially with a serial killer. I mean, nothing can be more boring than a clever serial killer that stays one step ahead of the cops or the detective. We've seen this a million times, but it's not trite at all. It's, it, 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 works, it works so well. Let me pick up on one of the other tropes that this movie avoids brilliantly, which is whenever a detective is working two cases in a movie or two separate detectives are working on something, it's always the same case. But what really allows this movie to get kind of to the heart of the nature of evil is the fact that, of course, it's the same case. It's all the same case. And this is stated in the movie without irony. Re the, the movie lets you know really early that as you start to dig into the nature of human evil, this is not about catching a killer. This is not about putting one person behind bars. And it really undermines those same tropes while at the same time being able to embrace it, right? Um, Morgan Freeman, uh, Somerset asked to be reassigned. But of course, you can't be reassigned because if you're working on anything, you're working on the nature of evil. You're you're dealing with humanity. And I, I just think it's really neat how it takes a lot of the triteness and it uses it to its own advantage. The movie tells you flat out, this isn't going to have a happy ending. And it tells you that right away. And boy, does it deliver one of the unhappiest endings of all time. But it lets you know that there's that there's no resolution here. It's, it's a detective story the same way that the Brothers Karamazov is a detective story or something like The Stranger you know, is a murder story. It's not. It's a. It's about the heart of what objective lies behind human actions, and and that there might not be one. Yeah, and we'll talk about that when we get to the ending. Because as a film viewer, you hope against hope that it will not end the way it does. But of course, it has to end the way it does. And and that ties in so well, Mike, with the fact that you know what city does this take place in? I have no idea. Although, uh, let me tell you one thing, which is that we disagreed. I just listened, re-listened to our episode on Taxi Driver. One thing that we disagreed on. Uh, is how New York City is filmed in Taxi Driver. And I said, the, the script hates New York City, but the camera loves New York City. 
when I'm talking about imagining a camera that hates a city, this that's is what I'm city. talking about. That's the city. And that's why I asked you what city is because it's every city. It's, it's deliberately never named. And of course, uh, Morgan Freeman can get reassigned if he wants to, but it doesn't matter. You're going to get the same thing. It's, it's, it's all the same case. It's all the same city. Weirdly, it strikes me as Cleveland. I'm not really sure why. Well, it's funny that the city is, and that the city as a character in the film. I mean, this is a film as visually ugly as its subject matter, right? It's always raining. Everything is yellow. It's always dark. Um, I love how Somerset has the metronome to help him go to sleep at night, but the film has its own metronome of of off-screen screaming. There's always somebody yelling in the background. There's there's car honkings. How about when they go to the massage parlor and the music is so loud, and and he says to one of the cops, like, can you do something about the music? And he's like, we're working on it. Like everything is an assault on your senses to the point where he throws the metronome because he knows you cannot cover up the noise of this city. That's also after David has blown up his reason to resign. You know, he says, you you say that you believe these things and that you're resigning because of them, but I think you believe them because you're resigning. And it's after that that he breaks the metronome because he can't be comforted. But right. I'm, I'm, I'm entirely with you. Yeah, totally. And you and how and how are you supposed to approach crime and how you're supposed to approach evil and the different avenues open to you is a big theme in the movie. We'll talk about when we get into it. The bones are beautiful, though, which is they fit a lot of crimes into an extremely short span of time. Once you start to think like the killer, it obeys all the classical Aristotelian unities. You know, it's it takes place within a short span of time with small characters in only one location. Uh, there's there's a lot of pretty things about it structurally. And I especially like the dialogue. I think that um, Brad Pitt has the goofiest dialogue, but I think a lot of his dialogue is goofy to kind of lull you into a false sense of security so that when he opens up at the bar, it's a revelatory moment. You know, it's you, you don't get the sense that this character is holding back. You get the sense that he's he's able to express himself, but it's like a once in a lifetime thing, but he manages to say what he means. And that's another scene that shouldn't, that should be trite, or that, I'm sorry, it's another scene that would be trite in different hands or with a different screenplay, right? That scene in the bar where he tells Morgan Freeman the, the, the truth about his retirement. And it, it doesn't. It, it actually works because he doesn't become, you know, Brad Pitt says, um, you know, just because he, he's a killer doesn't make him Yoda because he reads his, not everyone with a library card is Yoda, right? But it, in a weaker screenplay, one of those characters would have been Yoda. And, and, and giving him life advice or something like that. But it, it just comes across naturally. Like he had one drink too many and he sees right through Morgan Freeman and Morgan Freeman knows it because that happens sometimes in life. Well, the laughter's very natural as well. It, it would be surprising to have laughter in a movie like this, but there actually is a lot of it. And it's extremely disarming when it comes. It comes three times. The first time is when they're all having dinner together after Tracy's invited him for dinner. The shaking the sec Right. The second is at the diner when he says, you know, if you do decide to have this baby, you spoil it every chance you get. And she she breaks with emotion. And then the third is right before they go with John Doe when they're when they're shaving their chest, they're cracking each other up and they found some sort of equilibrium again because Somerset is able to acknowledge that David's right, you know, in, in what he said last. They, they Nobody ever says, hey, what you said last night, it had a big impression on me. And you're right. It's it's just understood. Right. And that's why Gwyneth Paltrow is also very good. The second scene that you talked about emotional, when she starts crying in the diner, that is surprising when it happens. Like you, like she just starts crying. But of course, if you think like her in that scene, it makes perfect sense why she starts crying at that moment. Well, it's two things. It's this movie doesn't allow you to get numb. Like it says the characters are numb. Yeah. Every numb. time you, every time you start to get into the rhythm of the movie, it takes you out. And also uh, it builds up a great, um, 
attachment to Tracy, but with not a lot of screen time. I would bet that she's only on screen maybe 14, 15 minutes. I didn't time it out. But the, your attachment to her over 14, 15 minutes is really, really focused. And it has to be for the ending to work. You know, one more thing to before we move on is that you, we talked about the things that this film could have done wrong. Another great thing, you talked about the unities and how many crimes are fit into the span of, you know, the week and the span of the two hours of the film. Um, you never see the crimes being committed. And again, a lesser director and a lesser screenwriter, I think, would have had a scene where where you see John Doe walk into the room and somebody's screaming, oh, no, oh, no, or something ha where like, you know, something's going on or there's some kind of dramatic irony. But you never see John Doe and the victims in the room at the same time. Well, this movie works so well, it teaches you to look at the walls. By the last murder, it's like fa bandaged face, beautiful face on the wall, pills, phone. You don't need, you know, when in the first murder, you need the cop's explanation, like, oh, he forced him to eat it. By the, by the last murder, you're so into it that you've already read the scene by what's on the wall. You're looking at the mise-en-scene just as a viewer, and you're picking up on what's going on. And I, I think that this film really teaches you how to watch it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I'll see you in part two where we talk about our favorite moments. So welcome back. In part two, we like to talk about a specific scene in the film that we think is really revealing of its themes or its issues or what makes the film special. So Mike, what was yours? So mine is when D when David and Somerset are working their first case together and David shows up in the rain with the two coffee cups uh, and tries to give Somerset one and he says, no, thank you. Uh, I was watching with my girlfriend and she said, she put it perfectly and it got me thinking, which was, she was like, who doesn't like coffee? And that, that it's, who doesn't like coffee? But it gets you deep into two things. One is like the monastic mindset of Somerset. It's such an important refusal because it goes so beautifully with the first scene of him, uh, you know, buttoning up his shirt and tying his tie and the way all those things are laid out, his three knives. Um, you find out later what the monasticism is for and on what it's based, but it's not accidental. All the things in his life are arranged in a specific way. And you, you understand that he doesn't want it while he's working. And he comes to stand for me in this film uh, as, as some kind of measure of civilization. He's like the last man standing, uh, the, the last full man. And I'll say more about that later, but uh, refusals, I think, have a lot to do with why he's able to stand for, for civilization that way. And I think also it's, so, it's sort of a symbolic gesture as well for me. We talked a lot about um, detective tropes or cop movie tropes that don't operate in this film. The coffee you know, the rookie with the coffee sure. definitely is sort of other, it's other movies, it's overheard language and scenes creeping in. And this movie says, no, thank you. That's not what this movie's about. That's great, Mike. And also, that, you know, what's when Somerset refuses, that's a great moment because think about it. Um, if it were somebody that you didn't know that well on your first day of work together, even if you had just drank a pot of coffee and they walked in with a coffee for you, what would you say? Thank you. Right. And you would maybe take a couple sips and like get away, but you wouldn't say like, no. And he just met him. And they're in the rain, he gives it to the other cop. So that's a great symbolic moment that shows us what Somerset's like. And what's yours? So mine was, um, you know, John Doe is a fascinating character. And we've talked before on this show about characters who strike us as artists, so to speak, right? So he's he's writing sermons with, with real life people. Um, He's someone that wants to make a terrible point, you know, in a terrible way. And when he's in the car and they're driving out to the to where the, the final scene of the film is going to take place, he says, um, wanting people to listen, you can't just tap them on the shoulder anymore. You have to hit them with a sledgehammer and then you'll notice you've got their strict attention. So I could not help thinking of something written by Flannery O'Connor, the great American short story novelist, who said this, 
When you assume that your audience holds the same beliefs as you, you can relax a little and use more normal ways of talking about it. When you have to assume that it does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing you shout, and to the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. And I'm not trying to excuse, obviously, what, what John Dunn, John Dunn, John Dunn, John Doe does in this film, but certainly, you know, he sees himself that way. And he thinks that, you know, a tap on the shoulder is not going to work. You have to shock people. And Flannery O'Connor knew that. I think a lot of great artists know that. And I think John Doe was interesting in this film because you don't find out what happened to him to turn him into like, like there's no, there's no scene that explains why the serial killer does what he does, right? He's like Iago using human beings to serve his own artistic ends. And he says, I love how he says, um, what I I've done is going to be puzzled over and studied and followed. Did you ever hear what James Joyce said about Ulysses? Yes, that it, he knew that it would create a cottage industry. He said, I put little puzzles in there that will keep them guessing for, yep. for decades. He says, I put so many enigmas and puzzles that it will keep the professors busy for centuries. And that's the only way of ensuring one's immortality. And that's exactly kind of, it's the same kind of um, ego, you could say, with certainly Joyce didn't have any ego problems, but it's the same kind of ego you see going on with John Doe. I think that this movie does a lot of things with characters that I wouldn't have expected from it. I think that the characters are are drawn deeply and not necessarily to type. But of course, when you want somebody to watch Seven, it's because the ending has such a kick. And of course, and it has to be that way from the beginning. It's not an accidental ending. And so you're you're drawn into John Doe's way of thinking because, of course, aesthetically, as a as the writer of the film, as the eye of the film, it must happen that way. And that's how he's thinking as well. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Is that is that the, is that um, David Fincher obeys that same rule in the ending because every that is exactly why you recommend Seven to people. You say it's it's unbelievably suspenseful. It's it's got great acting and it's a great screenplay, but also it's because the ending is so unbelievably powerful. So of course David Fincher draws large and startling figures too to shock the audience into thinking about the issues he's trying to present. Okay, so welcome back. Of course, in part three, we like to talk about our takes on the title, the ending. You know, the title's pretty obvious. So let's let's start with, you know, the ending or the big takeaways. So Mike, you just mentioned before, and you've mentioned before on the podcast that that Fincher, he he you gotta give him credit. He goes all the way. This movie ends in the only way it can. And again, what could have gone wrong? I thought to myself as I watched it, imagine if the film ended with Brad Pitt holding the gun out and you don't know what's gonna happen and the credits came on. You could imagine a cute director, someone trying to be cute, doing that kind of thing. So you don't really know what Brad Pitt does at the end. But and and even though I knew what he was going to do, it's still suspenseful. I mean, talk about the mark of great suspense that I knew exactly what he was going to do, but my stomach was still in a knot. And you're still, you're still, you still hurt so much for Morgan Freeman trying to, when he throws his own gun down, he's like, just stop, just stop. He's trying to stop it. So I think that um, there's no, there's no cop out at the end of the film. And the end of this film made me think of another film that we both like, that we've never talked about, and we've not done a podcast on it yet. It reminded me of No Country for Old Men, because that's another film about somebody who who seems out of his moral depth, right? So you have Tommy Lee Jones in that film, you have Morgan Freeman in this one, and here, you know, Morgan Freeman says, "I don't understand this place anymore. That's why I'm retired." You, you get numb to it. That's exactly Tommy Lee Jones's problem in in the film and also in the book, uh, the great book upon which it's, which it's based. So here's my question for you. So one. How do you how do you deal with the evil of the world? Well, one one solution is apathy, right? And they talk about that a lot in the film, right? He says you can lose yourself in drugs. It's easier than coping with life because um, it's easier to beat a child than to raise it. He says, you know, love costs. It takes effort and work. 
So apathy is, is one way to, to deal with the evil of the world. And ironically, I think that's what John Doe thinks as well, right? He says, we see a deadly sin on every street corner in every home and we tolerate it. We tolerate it because it's common, it's trivial. We tolerate it morning and night. So this is like a godless universe we're in. There's evil. There's, so there's apathy. That's one route. You can also make a point with your large and startling figures and sermonize to people if you're John Doe. What's the third way? Like, what's the, what's the third way? Well, the, the third way, I think, is why we're so drawn to Somerset, uh, played, by, played by Morgan Freeman, which is um, he has a gun, of course, just like David has a gun. But you'll notice that he never points it directly at anybody in the entire film, not once ever. He, he wears it because it, he wears it because it's a symbol of his authority. It's a symbol of civilization. But you'll notice that when he's chasing David, who's being attacked by John Doe, he's got it pointed down. You'll yep. notice that when he uses it to stop the truck driver, it's pointed up. As soon as uh, he's got it out when he's running towards David, as you said, uh, he throws it on the ground. He mentions that he's never had to shoot it. They have a whole conversation uh, and, about it, yeah. And he's actually never been shot. And so part of his restraint, uh, part of his restraint, his uh, his ability to be a person uh, in the face of the of that kind of evil, to be a person in the middle of that city, to be in the middle of the library, right? Where what it what is society like? Society is like reading a book while there's a poker game going on. That's what civilization is. And I think that that's that's why we're so drawn to him. And it and it's also a commentary on what on what civilization is, right? What he does is he takes notes out of all the other books and he makes a little book uh, for David and he writes Mills on it and he leaves it on his desk, which is actually, that's actually what all the books in the library are. It's the combined knowledge and wisdom of all the generations surrounding him, which is accessible to anybody, but you can't talk directly to the people who did it because they're gone. All, all you get is that they left it on your desk essentially for you. And I think that that's why we're so, drawn to Somerset, that's why he's the, the model in the film and why I think we're allowed to be, that's I think why the movie actually ends the way it does. I, I wouldn't have as much problem with an ambiguous ending as you, except for one thing, which is that um, David Mills is not the main character uh, of this book. Detective Somerset is the main character. Right. And so what this is about is, are you e even able to witness one more thing and then are you able to still be around? Are you gonna either leap, do, do you choose to leave the room or to join the game? Neither, you know, because really to, Mills's way of policing is a lot like John Doe's way. It's that some, people are doing things that upset me. And so I'm gonna use my force in order to stop them from what they're doing. And Somerset knows he's never gonna stop anybody. So that's, so So there's apathy, there's retaliation. So then what's, what's with withdrawal? Is, is it's that, it's it's great no it's grace under pressure that's why that that's why the the quote from hemingway, hemingway at the end, at the end it's, yeah it's deciding to it's deciding to be a person in the face of it in the hope that there might be another person and then another person then another person in spite of the overwhelming evidence that there will not be so it's like when we were little and we would complain about things other people and our mothers would say just worry about yourself just 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 take care of yourself that's hard enough don't worry about what the other people are doing take care of yourself and don't stop and I think that that's, that's why the decision at the end is so meaningful. That's why the last line or the second to last line is I'll be around then plus the, the quote yeah. from Hemingway. I I'm, I'm saying the quote from Hemingway is an easy symbol, but I didn't it does love that. that. I didn't love that quote from Hemingway. The, but I it think does, I'll be around is a better ending line, but it does. The, the I'll be around is almost as good as it's Chinatown, Jake. <laughs> right. But, but it lets you, but it, it it's, it's a point in the right direction, which yeah. is the third way. The only way is to just 
keep being a person in the space around. of it. No matter how loud the poker game gets or no matter, you know, how crowded the room gets, you just keep reading. Yeah. Uh, you, you have to be around and that's, and, and being around is enough, right? Somebody, I, I saw a sign once that said, don't try to be, um, don't try to be different. Just try to be good. Being good is different enough. <laughs> so that was great. That was a great conversation, Mike. Thanks for, thanks for recommending seven. If you haven't seen, if you're like me and you haven't seen it in a long time, definitely, definitely worth rewatching. If you have any recommendations or you know what you'd like us to do on the show, please reach out either on Twitter, by email. 15 Minute Film Fanatics, spelled out at gmail.com or on Twitter cool. at 15 Minute Film, 15 MIN Film. And if you feel so inclined, you can drop us a buck or two on Venmo. All the money is going back into movie rentals or equipment for the show. Everything goes back to the show. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. 